seems weird kicking off our, our Lenten season not on Ash Wednesday, but as you know, last week Ash Wednesday was changed to we're shutting down the entire Midwest Wednesday. Uh, the blizzard that went through, but glad you're here to join us for our service tonight. Because just because we didn't have an Ash Wednesday service doesn't mean Lent is just starting now. We are a week into Lenten season, a season, friends, that calls on us as believers to reflect upon our own lives, to reflect upon our spiritual condition, and, and to look and examine our sinfulness. And I think more importantly with that, to look at how serious that God looks upon sin. You see, I, the more I think about this, the more I think we as Christians have some common mistakes that we have as we reflect upon sin in our lives and how we minimize sin. And I think some of the reasons that we minimize sin is, first off, let's think about this now. You've got an enemy who rejected God, and so Satan and his angels are fallen now because of their own sin. Their end fate is secured. Their condemnation is guaranteed. There is no hope for them. So, of course, they're going to take everybody down with them. And that's why sin gets minimized in our lives, because they don't want to tell you what you're doing is separating you from God. Another reason I think that we minimize sin as Christians is because we don't want to think about our sin. It's easy to separate our sin into the two categories of those are the really bad sins, I don't do those, and because I don't do those, these little ones that I do do aren't as big of a deal. And so we chalk up like things like murder and stealing and adultery. Those are the really bad sins. And we minimize sins like anger and gossip and malice and strife and unforgiveness and bitterness, forgetting the fact that those sins are linked into the big bad ones, all as sins that will not inherit the kingdom of God. So that's the other mistake we make is we like to minimize the sins that we still like to do. But I think another reason we have a tendency, friends, to minimize sin, and I, I say this almost in awe of God. It might come across, I'm sorry if it's, if it's blasphemous, but sometimes it's like God almost made it too easy for us. Like our Midwest mentality is, well, if you want heaven, you know, if you want something, you've got to work for it. So Jesus, I'm sure it's more than just me recognizing what you did on the cross for me, believing in you, and then I get to be forgiven? Like that just sounds too easy. And so I think because of that, we minimize our sin because it just seems that easy. But you see, friends, we have to remember that's not how God sees sin. He doesn't see it as something really easy. God doesn't look at sin as just something that he can overlook. Now, what's amazing about God is we know that he doesn't hang on to our sin Scripture makes clear he blots out our sins from us. It's the reason that God can't just overlook sin is because of the fact that we are made in the image of God. We are made for him and everything that is sin is against him. So if God, our creator, who made us in his image is holy, which means set apart and he's here, he is set apart from all things that are evil and that are wrong and that are bad. Why in the world would we who are called to be set apart with him set ourselves apart from him? And that's what sin does. 
So what I think we have to do, friends, and I want to talk about this today, is I want us to understand the severity of sin. Because when we understand the severity of sin, we're able to understand what Christ really did on the cross for us. We're able to understand Christ as our suffering Savior. And in that, we can understand just how serious that God takes sin. Because it's, it's, if you think about it, Scripture calls for the fact that, that death is what's needed to pay the price for sin. Well, then why didn't Jesus just stand in front of a firing squad? He was killed right away, rise again, and now we're all saved. Why did he have to suffer the way that he did? It's so that we can understand the severity of sin in the eyes of God and never minimize it. It's so we can look at the cross and we can see all that our Savior endured for us, not only to look at the cross and understand the severity of our sin to God, but understand his tremendous love for us, that he would endure that suffering for us. I'd invite you to please rise for our sermon text. Our sermon text today is actually going to come from the book of Matthew, chapter 27, verses 45 and 46. Now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This ends our scripture reading. You may be seated. Friends, this Lenten season, what we're going to do is we're going to spend our time looking at what we're calling eyes on the Savior. Eyes on the Savior is reflection then of all of the ways that Jesus is shown throughout Scripture to us. We're going to look at Jesus tonight as the suffering Savior. And I chose this section from Matthew because the power of the words of my God, my God, why have you forsaken me to highlight the suffering of Christ. Do you know these words that Jesus cried out are so significant? Of the seven sayings that Jesus did on the cross, there's seven sayings recorded in Scripture that while Jesus was on the cross, he said, three of them are in Luke, three of them are in John, and they're all unique. Only Matthew and Mark have this in it. This is the only saying of Jesus in the Gospels from the cross that was recorded twice. And I think it was because of the significance of this text here. The significance of this text crying this out. And so I want to look at what Jesus meant when he cried this out. How Jesus crying this out reflects truly the suffering that he endured on our behalf. So what I want to do tonight is I actually want to go to Psalm 22 and preach through Psalm 22. Because you see, what I truly think that Jesus was thinking as he is on the cross, why he cried this out, there's two reasons that I believe that Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And I think the first reason that Jesus cried this out is he is trying to have all his hearers around him think, wait a second, that sounds like Psalm 22. I'm going to go read Psalm 22. 
Because if the audience knows that Psalm 22 was written by King David a thousand years ago, which is almost a perfect description of what is taking place with Jesus as he is hanging on the cross on that day. Any audience that heard that, that would have gone back and read the scriptures, would have said, wait a second, God laid this in motion more than a thousand years ago. But the other reason that I think Jesus cried that out, I think it's how he felt in that moment. Here he is hanging on a cross. He has been beaten and mocked and humiliated. He's in the most unbearable pain possible. We have to remember, and sometimes we're like, well, yeah, Jesus is God, but Scripture says Jesus is God, fully God and fully man, that he knows and felt and endured everything that we have known, felt, and endured. So for him to be crying out in unbearable pain means he was crying out in unbearable pain that we can't even imagine. And I think it's his humanity that is crying out, God, where are you right now? I need you. So I want us to tie all of what we hear in Psalm 22 today as we go through these descriptors of David writing about something that was going to happen a thousand years later, showing God's plan in all of this. That we can hear God's plan was this suffering that he was going to endure on our behalf. That we can understand that our sin against God and the heaviness and the weight of it. Like that we would actually understand that what Christ endured was truly awful because our sin is truly awful. That we wouldn't just minimize it. So as we break down Psalm 22, it starts like this. David says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? So here's David crying out to God. Why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? These cries of anguish to God to be saved. And it's like, God, why are you not listening to me? And again, I can't help but imagine the pain that Jesus was feeling. Jesus, the Son of God, the perfect son of God, the one that God said, this is my son with whom I am pleased, the one whom through all things were made. In such, an, in such a moment where he's hanging on the cross that God isn't coming down and intervening, but of course that would be his flesh speaking for that because Christ would have known the reason that this was written a thousand years prior because Christ was there writing this out knowing this was going to be the plan the suffering that he was going to endure on our behalf. I want to point out one quick side note, though, friends, because we've all been here before. We've all been to the point where we cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Or at least cried out in those moments where, God, why are you so far from saving me? Why aren't you hearing me, right? But I want you to remember this much. There's a bit of encouragement why David would have cried out here, why Jesus would have cried out, you don't cry out to one that can't save you. When we are crying out to God, it's because we are trusting God that he can save us. Maybe he's not hearing us in the moment, but know that he is hearing you and he is there for you and he does have the power to save. That is why we trust in him. 
So we go on to verse 7 and 8 then as we look at these descriptors of the suffering that Jesus endured. All those who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. They say, he trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him for he delights in him. This is all sarcasm right there. And I can't help but think, friends, this is purely conjecture. I can't help but think as Jesus is sitting there hanging on the cross, this would have been the worst part for him. That Jesus, the Son of God, part of the Trinity, God himself, God the Son, coming down to this earth to save his own people from their sins, and they don't see it. And they mock him and they ridicule him for it. Going back to Matthew's account of the crucifixion, listen to verses 39 through 43. Of all the ways that the people despised Jesus, and those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes and the elders, these are supposed to be God's people, by the way. They mock him, saying, he saved others, he cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now, if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. Like, how painful does that have to be for Jesus? That his own people are mocking and ridiculing not just him, but God even in his relationship with God. Here Jesus is in a oneness with God and we're sitting there ridiculing that. I mean, it probably would have felt somewhat better for Jesus if in that moment on the cross, people would have fallen at their knees and said, isn't it amazing that God loves us that much that he would endure this much for us? But no, what's happening is the one who is worshiped eternally in heaven, the all-powerful God who is always praised is here being mocked by his own creation for something he came to do for his own creation. And why are they mocking Jesus? Because he doesn't fit their ideology of what God is supposed to be like. I mean, here's God, supposedly the pride and joy of all of Israel. And so because of that, there's no way then that, that this simple man from a nowhere town who loved all people, like, ooh, he loved the untouchables even, there's no way that this could be the God of Israel. Sometimes I wonder if we would be that way too if Jesus came down to this earth, if we would reject him because he doesn't fit our image of what he's supposed to look like. What Jesus do we follow? The image of Jesus we created or the one that's told about in Scripture here? Because the amazing thing about the Jesus of Scripture is the love that he shows to his people because even in this moment of all of this mocking and ridiculing, I don't know about you, but somebody comes at me like that, you bet I'm going to throw it right back at them. How easy would it have been for Jesus to say, I'll show you and a few lightning bolts come down from heaven, right? Instead, he doesn't say anything, and you know all he's thinking is, I'm doing this for you. Then you get verses 12 through 14. Many bulls encompass me, strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me, like a ravenous and roaring lion. 
I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. So you've got this scripture, these bowls of Bashan, which in those times were known to be almost one and a half times the size of bowls from other areas. They were massive beasts. And then the lion that he's describing, we all know lions are, are just ferocious apex predators. And so you've got these massive bulls and these lions. Basically, you've got the all-powerful that have nothing else in their mind but to seek the destruction of Jesus. And they've surrounded him because they've finally done it. They've gotten him and they've gotten him on the cross and they're finally going to get rid of him. Like these are such ferocious and fearful people that as David says, my heart is like wax, it is melted within my breast, I am poured out like water. All of the Old Testament usages of the word fear are tied in with water and with wax. Why? Because they're formless substances. You ever get scared and you say, my legs turn to jelly? That's what it's talking about here. Like this situation is so frightening that David is describing himself as just being full of fear and terrified. And again, the irony of this whole situation. And I don't know if, if David meant this when he said this, if he was actually referring to Christ in this. But he said, all my bones are out of joint. Was he actually talking about Jesus' crucifixion and knowing what that was like and what took place there? Nobody here remembers this. I don't remember it. But actually, back when I was an intern here, like nine years ago, I did a, a sermon, and it was based entirely on everything that happens to the body during crucifixion. It was awful. I'm not going to share it tonight because it was that bad. I think I, I think I deleted that sermon. It was awful. Except for one thing always stood out to me. When they would take the bodies down from crosses, their arms would be six inches longer. Isn't it interesting that David said, all my bones are out of joints. Verse 16, for dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. Like we got to understand this imagery that's being painted here because the problem in our modern times is dog is man's best friend. These are not warm, cute little puppies that are surrounding Jesus right now. This is a pack of ravenous dogs that have one thing in mind and that is they want to destroy him. And it says so here, they have pierced my hands and my feet. The one thing that scholars find so maddening about the crucifixion of Jesus is it doesn't fit how Roman law used to work. Only the worst of the worst actually were sentenced to crucifixion. And on top of that, only the worst of those worst ever actually had nails. Usually you're just your hands were tied to the cross because it was so awful to nail somebody's hands. And yet there's Jesus having his hands and his feet pierced. What did he even do? And verse 17 goes on. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. So not only do you have all these ravenous dogs or these villains that are surrounding Jesus at this point, but now everybody that's passing by as well is staring at him. You've got this weak and this broken, bleeding, wounded, rejected man on a cross, and everybody's walking by going, well, you get what you deserve. Because you know we've all said that about other people ourselves. 
And everybody that's walking by in their self-righteousness, thinking that about Jesus, isn't realizing that because Jesus is up there dying for us, we are not getting what we deserve. He is getting what we deserve. But we don't see that. We just ridicule him for it. Verse 18 They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Like, as if this day doesn't get any worse, let's just kick the guy when he's down. And let's basically just imagine being in a desert and you're on your last breath and you see the the, the vultures circling overhead. It's like, really, guys, can you wait? And so here's what's happening with Jesus. He's up in the cross and he's watching people literally like play games for his clothing. They don't even have the dignity or respect for him to wait until he's dead to do that. But you know what? Why should they? If if this guy was so special, well then God would have saved him, right? And so if you know the Passion account, because we've heard the passion before. It's all throughout the Gospels, describing Jesus' death and everything. You would know how accurate this is then, that David just wrote this a thousand years earlier. This should help us to understand. This has been God's plan, friends, from the beginning. In the beginning with Adam and Eve, God made clear once we fell that he was going to make things right again, and this is how he did it. And I think we have to go to the poetry of what David wrote here in Psalm 22 to truly understand how horrible that day was for Jesus. Because as much as I don't get poetry, the one thing I get about it is the reason people write poetically is you can describe things in ways that you can't normally. And so these descriptions of how horrible it was for Jesus, friends, should really help us never to, to look more than just, well, Jesus died for my sins. No, he suffered unbelievably for our sins. This poetry here captures the horrors of that day, of all the things that happened to Jesus, things that we can't even begin to imagine how awful it was. It was an awful day, and that's why Jesus cried out the way that he did. And so stop and think about this now. Think about how awful this whole day was for Jesus. Everything that he endured for you. Let me ask you this, right? How's your sin doing? You still loving it? Like in knowing everything that Jesus just endured, how is it important that you follow through now on all those things that you're like, yeah, I really shouldn't be doing that? Knowing all of the suffering and the pain that Jesus took, how, easy, how weird does it suddenly sound to like justify those little bad habits you have where you kind of think, you know, well, you can't teach an old dog new tricks. Like somehow God thinks that little quip is cute and it's okay to live in ways that's against his character? knowing every single thing that Jesus endured that way to the point where he would cry out to God out of anguish. How's your selfishness working, your pride working for you in light of all of that? Like it gets hard to get caught up in that kind of stuff when we realize every single thing that Jesus endured for us. It makes it a little bit harder to want to keep walking in sin when you realize how much pain he endured for you. But friends, there's great news to all of this. 
There's great news to the heaviness of the Lenten season where we reflect upon our sinfulness and our wickedness because the reality is it should absolutely wreck all of us to know that our God loves us that much and yet we still continually, continually pursue a life the exact opposite of that. It should completely destroy us that he would be so gracious and so loving that we just go, yeah, but I'm going to do my own thing my own way. But instead of walking around just feeling wrecked and destroyed and it's all hopeless and there's no, no chance because frankly none of us are worthy, I find it very interesting. In this Psalm 22, David had written, I am a worm and not a man. Like understanding how little and insignificant we really are, how we are not worthy of God's love, but no matter what Satan tries to tell you then, if he gets you, because sometimes he'll do this, then you're right, you're right. Let's examine your sin and then he'll hit you with it so much that you're not worthy of God's love. But I love this verse, my friends. Verse 24, For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. He has not hidden his face from him, but he has heard when he cried to him. Friends, this is all part of God's plan of salvation, and this plan has been completed now. The hand of God has been at work at the beginning of time where he has said, I know that you are going to turn away from me. I know that you are going to run from me. And I know that in your sin you are going to cry out to me. And if you do cry out to me, I will not turn my back on you. I will, in fact, not despise you or abhor you. I will not hide my face from you, but I will hear your cries. Friends, know this. That in your sin, when you cry out to God for forgiveness and for repentance and for deliverance, he will hear that and he will restore you and redeem you. That's why I want to leave you with this tonight, about the God that never forsakes us. To remember this at all times, that in his love for us, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. I want you to be able to look at the cross, friends, and see the suffering that Jesus did for you, but see that tremendous love that God has for you, that even though you were a sinner, Christ died for you. That Christ did not die for you because you were perfect. Christ died for you to make you perfect. And now that you've been washed clean by the blood of Jesus Christ, the blood of your suffering Savior. It's time that we start living as if we've been made perfect.